Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, and welcome to Historically Thinking. My guest today is Cathal Nolan, Associate Professor of History, Executive Director of the International History Institute at Boston University. We'll be discussing his book, The Allure of Battle, A History of How Wars Are Won and Lost, published last year by Oxford University Press. I'm pleased to be able to say that The Allure of Battle is now a finalist for the 2017 Gilder Lehrman Prize for Military History. Cathal, welcome, Cal, sorry, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you very much for the invitation. Um, so your book, uh, to purloin a few lines that I heard uh, Russ Roberts uh, use on his Econ Talk podcast, um, it is, in one way, I can't possibly recommend this book to any listener. Um, first of all, it's huge. Uh, it makes you think. Uh, and as we recently discussed with our guest, Peter Burkholder, uh, thinking is really difficult for the human brain. We respond to stimulus. Uh, we don't really have a lot of pieces of our brain devoted to actually thinking about something. And if you read this book, I'm afraid that every few pages or so, you'll have to put it down and think about what you just read. So that's hard. It takes you deep, deep, deep into the weeds. Um, you are, I think, an 18th century French military history was your original specialty? Uh, yes, but predominantly these days I teach the two world wars. Yeah, okay. So but you, then you go from the Battle of Golden Spurs, 1302, outside Court Rye in modern Belgium, to how Japanese soldiers got resupplied with rifles in Burma. Where the answer is they took them off their dead mates. Um, the French army's tradition of fighting petty guerre in the 18th century to the war between the, uh, the war, what would be the Koenigratz, the battlefield of Koenigratz, the war between Prussia and Austria for who got to rule Germany, basically. Um, there are lots and lots and lots of names. There are lots of footnotes and lots and lots of footnotes, and we know that a general history reading audience hates footnotes. But they're all uh, at the back. Yeah, which I, of course, find uh, difficult because I want to read them immediately. But I mean, on the other hand, of course, I can't recommend this book enough um, because it's audacious, uh, because it, it spares no sacred cows, uh, because it is not aimed at anyone, it's aimed at everyone who reads it, um, because it transcends the squabbles uh, in military history, which non-specialists like myself uh, and like just about all the listeners don't care about. Um, and it explains why military history is important, uh, because it's about genius, which is perhaps the most overrated word um, in our modern lexicon. And it's about technique, um, the one best way to achieve an outcome and both genius and technique are obsessions of the modern world. So this is really about, it's not about military history, it's as we were discussing in previous the podcast, it's about the human condition in the modern age. And um, I can't recommend that book, this book enough as a way of think, thinking about that. Thank you very much. Um, so let's begin then with why thinking about battles is important, uh, even for people who think military historians are idiots. I just, you know, I overheard another a fellow historian saying that the other day, um, I didn't kick him, uh, but um, it's certainly uh, 
a belief that's common in the academy, and yet one which, even though I'm not a military historian by training, one with I firmly disagree. So why is thinking about battles? Why is that important? Well, I think the person that you want to pick may have been uh, closer to my position than maybe obvious at the beginning, because uh, <laughs> it's important to think about battles the same way that much of military history does, so much as it is to think about war. And I uh -huh. think that the way military history has over-concentrated on battles and the description of battles, and if you're not a professionally trained officer, uh, I mean, look, you study the Battle of Gettysburg, and somebody says, you know, Lee should have gone left, Lee should have gone right, so-and-so should have moved two brigades over here. How mm -hmm. do you know? How can you judge that? The answer is you cannot. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, uh, frankly, also our knowledge of what happens in battles, another swirl of, of facts, and most of them unknown to us, courts um, and uh, suppositions, you can't actually know what happens in a battle. I mean, the, the, in, in the detail enough to actually, uh, in rare occasions, sometimes you can, you can see what happened in a battle, you can explain the outcome of the battle, but generally a battle is, is, is anarchic and chaotic, and the famous line, of course, no uh, battle plan survives uh, first contact with the enemy is, I think, essentially, essentially true. And I don't think that's the way, I think that's the way most military history is taught and has been for too long. I think that's the way, why so many other historians simply don't read it, balk at it. There's also ideological reasons why they're like that. Um, but I think what, what I've attempted to do in this book and what I try to do in my courses is to teach the deeper realities of war, which are vastly more important. I mean, so what are the deeper, what are the deeper realities of war? Sorry? What are the deeper realities of war? That, uh, well, the one I think in modern history that is talking about the major power clashes of the last sorry, several centuries, I think um, the larger reality is that almost no great power war has been decided by battle. That battles are fundamentally an accelerant of attrition, and that attrition is the underlying uh, determinant of how wars are won and lost. That's the essential argument of my book. It's highly unpleasant. Nobody wants to be told to, you know, uh, go and fight in a battle of attrition. They want to think that on some field of glory they can decide the outcome, and that in an afternoon or a day or a three-day fight, you can decide the, you can turn the hinges of history in a certain direction, and you can't. You get, you get into these grand slogging matches that go on not just for years, but for decades. I mean, we, as civilists yourself, you know, we have wars called the Hundred Years' War, the Thirty Years' War, uh, and on and on. And I think we are, uh, I was at Fort Leavenworth last summer, um, uh, and I was talking with uh, people in the Army Command School, and at one point, you know, um, semi-cheekily, but also, you know, really inquiring what they thought, I suggested are we, that we could be in a new 30 years war. They didn't blink. Mm -hmm. So I, I suggested maybe we're in a new 100 years war. They thought that was a distinct possibility. Yeah, well, from the very beginning, there were people, it was like, for example, the, um, was it the Long War Journal? I think some Marine Corps officers set up in 2003 or 2004, I forget when it was. Long War is the phrase, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's been a part of operational thinking, I, I think, at least among some of the junior officers for a long time. Right. And it's interesting because in the, 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 the dramatic historians refer to most of the 19th century as long peace. Uh, it's, it's, 
an interesting, you know, 1815 to 1914. Or at least right, yeah. And, and, and there's, of course, it's not the Hundred Years' War. It's not the only one. In, in some ways, the wars between Britain and France over the 18th century is also another. Um, another Hundred Years' War, really. Yeah. Really, really going from um, from the adulthood of Louis XIV to 1815. Yeah. What, um, how should we then, I think we've got the standard received view of, of military history then nailed down. Um, that's the way that, uh, sort of the wrong but proper and customer way, customary way that um, people think of military history. It, you spend then quite a lot of time um, basically smashing that received wisdom. Uh, let's do that quickly. Uh, let's go through, uh, how would I name some battles and you explain why they aren't that great? Or why they're great in a different way. Um, let's, say, let's start with Blenheim. Great meaning important. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Why they're not important. So the, the Duke of Marlborough's victory at Blenheim in um, in Bavaria in 1705. That one I actually do think was a fairly significant battle uh, because uh, it set the uh, it was a, it was a grand victory. Uh, it set the um, it, it really knocked. Um, it knocked. Uh, it, it set the southern limit to Louis XIV's uh, ambitions, and it put the French on permanent defense. So I would call that a decisive battle, but it's a, it's a, it's a decisive battle in a fundamentally indecisive war, because <laughs> the nature of warfare at the time is 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 uh, most marked by stone defenses. It's marked by uh, what were called lines, which were essential early trench systems. Um, fortified uh, frontier defenses, and endless encastellation of the countryside. Mm -hmm. And so it, 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 I think you, you point out uh, that it, it defended uh, Vienna. It kept uh, the Austrian Empire in, in the war, which was essential towards... Um, and it, 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 really, it, it kept the Austrians in against the French. It kept the coalition together. Uh, yeah. And it, it was Marlborough's great victory. And it was a, it was a significant victory. I'm not, I'm not arguing that there are no decisive battles. No. I'm arguing even the most decisive battles in large, I'm talking about great power wars, not asymmetric wars, not great power mm -hmm. wars. But in the great power conflicts, it, you, the, the allure of battle that the title refers to is the, is the notion that you think you're going into a short, sharp war in which either your national superiority, your military superiority, your technical superiority, uh, your general superiority, uh, will win you a short, sharp war, and you end up slogging out a war of attrition that goes on for years, and is frequently indecisive. I mean, the, yeah. um, uh, the, at the end of the day, uh, Louis XIV, who spent 29 years of war, really advanced the borders of his country and the cause of his nation hardly at all, and did severe damage to it, actually, in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and a, for every Blenheim, then there's a Malplaque, um, which... Right. British historians have liked to count as one of Marlborough's victories, but it's, 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 it's ridiculous. This fourth battle victory, I argue that it was a defensive victory for the French general who fought it. Yeah, and it um, achieved absolutely nothing. Well, it, it achieved for the French, nothing, it achieved nothing for the British. The Anglo-Dutch side. Yeah. Um, and you have to remember, Marlborough was, uh, in addition to being, I mean, he was a superior general of his period, uh, a superior general. Um, but he was also, par excellence, a political general, a, 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 a personal propagandist, and he was endlessly corrupt. Um, Blenheim Castle, where President Trump, uh, I, I believe, was yesterday, uh, the mm -hmm. 
Churchill nice family place. was built with corrupt stolen money from the uh, from the budget of the army and from uh, corrupt political um, supporters of Marlborough in Parliament. Well, now you sound like such a Whig, or is it a Tory? I forget who was against who at the time. But um, yes, uh, certainly it, it is. Uh, I, I think what we prefer to, the Churchill family prefers to say it is an example of the thanks of a grateful nation and monarch. But leaving that aside, how about what about, uh, for example, Waterloo? That's everyone's favorite decisive battle. Yeah, I think that 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 I think is maybe uh, that along with Kanai uh, in the yeah. classic the classical literature. Uh, but Waterloo is, I think. Um, the best, the single best example of a battle that is I'm fundamentally misunderstood by the general public as having been the battle that decided the Napoleonic Wars. Napoleon was, and France, which is more important, uh, were fundamentally strategically defeated a year earlier in 1814, uh, following um, uh, the catastrophic decision to invade Russia, of course, that's famous. Um, less well-known, except to military historians, is the long year, year-long campaign in Germany where Napoleon mm-hmm. was um, frequently outnumbered, uh, not always outfought, but defeated more often than he won, essentially driven back into France all along the way with a reduced force. Then France was defeated by multiple Allied armies, and Napoleon was defeated inside France and forced to abdicate. Uh, and as you know, uh, reduced from the emperor of, of the French to the emperor of Elba, uh, and then came back for the Hundred Days campaign, which was, I think, um, has been probably best described. The name, the, the author of this description, escapes me at the moment, as a glorious anachronism. Um, it, 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 it's an exclamation point at the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Well, let, let, okay, how do I make the point? If let's say Napoleon wins at Waterloo, he wins at Waterloo. There were five other armies already on the way to France, totaling yeah. over 500,000 men. He was not going to win the war. He might have won two or three more battles. He was that good when it came to tactics on the battlefield, or he used to be. He was losing some of that uh, by the end. Um, but his army was comprised now. There were Some of his troops were 14 years old, mm-hmm. um, 14 and 15-year-old call-ups. France was utterly exhausted. France was worn out. France had been defeated. Uh, and the and Europe was 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 the European powers were done with this man, and they they sent half a million troops, and they had more to come after that into France. And even if he had won two or three more times, it was over. He had been defeated the year before. That was, that's my argument. Yeah. So it, Waterloo is uh, is a great tactical victory for the Duke of Wellington and the uh, Anglo-Dutch coalition, but ultimately is. Not it's important to the outcome. It's a victory, but it did not decide the war. Yeah. Um, it's, um, uh, it's, it's like saying, it's, just like, it's like looking at some of the fights of, of the German army in, in, in early 1945 and saying, well, that's how the war was won. No, it was won long before that. Mm-hmm. But people keep on fighting. People keep on fighting. Most wars go on, frankly. Most big wars go on for a significant period after the decision has already been made. Mm-hmm. Um, um, there's an inertia. There's an inertia to the moral commitment uh, on the losing side. It can get more extreme as as the war draws to a close. This is well known. So this idea of decisive battle is um, it's a cultural construct, um, and it has its own history. And you are tracing that history, I think, uh, as it moves from military culture to military culture, appropriates it. Uh, is that a correct way of, of, of putting uh, a certain yeah, direction? 
say there's no such thing as a decisive battle. No, um, I, I, I agree. I'm not talking about there are decisive battles, but it's the construct that the whole aim of warfare is to achieve the, de the decisive battle. That's, that's Friedrichian, Leonic, Clausewitzian, call it what you want. That's Clausewitz. Yeah. Um, that, that, it's not just Clausewitz, but it's the, it's the example of, 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 uh, of Napoleon above all, uh, which, um, um, despite the fact that he actually lost, uh, this, is the, this is the idea that if you're not fighting the way Napoleon fought, if you're not fighting the way Clausewitz says you need to fight, that the perfect form of war is to bring everything to the climactic battle and defeat your enemy's army in a, in a decisive throw of the dice. Uh, and if you're not doing that, you're not really making war. But in fact, most war isn't like that. And even Clausewitz's life began to realize that most war is, in fact, indecisive and defensive and attritional and limited. It's, it's not absolute. It's not total. Um, we are, I think, deluded into the notion that war tends to the total because of what happened in the 20th century, when we got the most total wars, of course, of all of human history. But... Um, in the current period, and look, look at the news tonight, look out the window, look at the newspaper, and you see chronic warfare with no clear path to victory by either side in sight, but no willingness to stop fighting a 30 years war, a 50 years war, a 70 years war. There are several of those actually underway now. I mean, they've been fighting in Sudan for 40 years, fighting in Burma for 60 years. They've been fighting uh, in the Middle East. Some people would refer to the Middle Eastern wars as the 70 years war. And on and on, this is actually more common than the climactic, um, all-in-one nature of war that Clausewitz uh, framed. And I think he framed it because he saw it out his window in his own lifetime. Uh, and uh, like most of us, what we see in our own lifetime appears to be eternally true. Uh, and if we're scholars, we tend to write it down, and it gets frozen. Yeah. I, I'm... Curious, I mentioned this in the intro. There's two words um, which you, one of which you certainly refer to a couple times, and one is genius. Um, this is uh, Klaus Witzian in, in the terms of, of, of taking um, Napoleon as the archetype, um, as a genius, and the right. need to define. I and mean, this is the way that Americans tell the story of the Civil War: is basically Lincoln sorting, shifting through generals until he finally finds a genius or the way Confederates told the story, that there was a sort of divine-sent genius uh, to lead them. Um, you are critical of that. This is an age in which every football coach uh, with a winning record is a genius. Um, yep. This is an age in which every good TED Talk is delivered by a genius. Um, so... Every new app. Exactly. Every, every corporate, uh, every company with a good earnings record for at least uh, six quarters is run by a genius. Um, it's an overused word. We know that. Um, in a way, you're tracing, I think, one of the chief ways in which it's come to haunt us. It goes back to the Enlightenment. Uh, the Enlightenment searched genius in all walks of life, uh, and the German Enlightenment in particular, which is less well known than the French Enlightenment, decided it, found it, uh, that there were natural-born geniuses. They thought genius resided, they didn't quite say it this way, but sort of in the blood royale, uh, in, in, in the monarch, in the sovereign, or that there were native-born geniuses, and they would identify, Frederick the Great was identified as one, Napoleon was identified, they went into classical history, and they looked at Scipio and uh, Hannibal and so on, and they looked, they talked about the, the genius in command. Sort of the, and it's really almost an analogy to the conductor of an orchestra. 
that the general is the um, and what I and I, I I probably wrong with this. I know so little about music, but it's always struck me when listening to an orchestra that the stick makes no noise. Um, <laughs> Well, it's interesting that the, the rise of the conductor, I just read an article about this, she's uh, now, I forget where, does kind of coincide with this idea of the military genius and of the, uh, the it, it's a, it is a late 19th century development. Yeah, it's a, it's, a re, it's a replacement of the genius of, to be blunt, it's a replacement of the old religious concept that genius is an aspect of God with a new humanistic view that the greatest uh, sort of, the greatest approach we make to godliness uh, is the geniuses among us, um, and and there are geniuses among us uh, every so often. They're usually fairly functional people, um, and that includes uh, that includes. Uh, look, was Napoleon a superlative general? Yes, he was far and away the best general of his age. Doesn't mean he always won, uh, and it doesn't mean he actually understood war. I think that's one of the most difficult things that I say that people will have uh, will object to. I want to get back to that. Now that you've, now that you've opened that up, we'll put a pin on that and come back to it. But go on. Don't want me to continue on that. Okay. Yeah, go on. Go on with the... I was going to say that uh, that most of the what, what people think are genius is in command. I think there's two explanations for it. Uh, I think people like uh, Frederick, people, uh, but less so than Napoleon. But let's say Napoleon because he's the exemplar. Um, Napoleon was uh, incomparable in his ability to command and control and to see the battle and so on at the tactical level. And he was unusual at also having a certain, if you want to use the word genius, I don't like it, but a, a superlative talent at the operational level. So how to organize a campaign, how to move armies before the battle, to maximize your advantage. But what Napoleon almost never thought of was strategy. He actually, again, it's hard for people to grasp that but it happens a lot, maybe most frequently, that nations and leaders start wars. They actually have no plan on how to win them. Uh, and this is what I mean by the allure of battle. They think that they win wars by battles. They get into the war thinking, let's win this opening battle. Let's win this opening campaign. We'll have a short, sharp war. They find that they're in a long, drawn-out war of attrition, and they don't have a plan to win it, and they don't have the capability to win it, because the other side will also commit, and he's intelligent too. Um, back to, I, I want to follow up on this this one one thing that you that you just said. Is, is it even possible to have a plan to win a war when you begin a war? That's something I've been wondering it since reading your book. Usually doesn't work out. Uh, yeah. I mean, the famous statement on this, uh, well, the on the irony is just astonishing. The statement is is the elder. Uh, who said, uh, I've already quoted it, that there are variations on the translation, but uh, essentially no battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. This is Molk, the head of the German great generals, the Prussian great general staff, who wins right. the Austrian Franco-Prussian War. His successors, including uh, Schlieffelin, von Schlieffelin, and his nephew, Molk the Younger, then go into World War I with the most infamous bad plan in the history of modern warfare, the Schlieffelin plan in which they actually say, by day 20, we'll be here. By day 25, we'll be here. By day 42, we win the war against France, a great power army. Uh, and then we swing our forces around and go and win another war against the other great power in the East uh, against Russia. It's, it's, it's an absurd. Uh, and, uh, and actually, I think um, it's pretty clear that this, well, Molk himself, younger, the younger Molk, the man who actually went into the war in August of 1914 with the Schlieffen plan, 
did not believe it could work. Not that it might not work. He thought it could not work. That, that there was actually no way uh, that the German plan could actually move enough troops in enough speed in the right places to do what the plan said it had to do if Germany wasn't, was to avoid a long war. So they went ahead with it anyway. They got into a long war, and they lost. And then they did it all over again in 1939. One of the, the major German commanders of the First World War, Erich von Ludendorff, was once asked, what, do, what is the essence of German tactics? And he said, and I quote, we punch a hole and see what develops, end quote. That's not a plan. That's a reckless gamble. That's rolling what another German, uh, Bismarck, called the iron dice of war. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, the Japanese uh, replicated that in 1941. Yeah, absolutely, spectacularly. And I'm, you know, I, I don't write about this. I don't. I really the book stops in 45. But mm-hmm. of course, uh, arguably, this is the great mistake that the Bush administration made in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Is the allure of battle? We're going to win the great battle. We're going to destroy the Iraqi army, and they did. But they didn't actually have a plan to win the war. They simply had assumptions that things will fall into place in a certain way. And when that didn't happen, we're still there. And the assumptions, um, what's interesting, uh, you don't talk, um, one can't but think about that uh, as you read the book. One can't think about, but think about 2003. One of the things I, I mentioned in the intro is, is that really your criticism applies to everybody. Many of the critics of the Bush administration, uh, consciously or unconsciously, um, had the same assumptions. They just want them to fight a more decisive battle or a better decisive battle. Or, or use different techniques or whatever. Yeah, I yeah. mean, the operating assumption in this case being that inside everyone in the world is a little small D Democrat waiting to get out. And that all Americans have to do is sort of release it. And, and they're yeah. and they're, they're find the lessons of the Second World War in which they see the, the post-war democratization of Italians and of Germans and Japanese and yeah. assume it's a universal truth. This is a very American. Well, yeah, or that, or even if you don't believe that, there is still the belief, which is very hard to shake because it's part of our our world, it's part of our culture, that there is there must be a better technique somewhere, and you it might be Bush, it might be Obama, it doesn't matter. It's the, you, the other person of the other tribe just is too stupid to have that technique. That's certainly, that, that, yeah, that's certainly the case being argued out now. That with, people are arguing uh, at the wrong tail of causation of our difficulties. I think. Yeah, so that, and that's the very allied, I guess, to the search for genius is the search for the right technique, the, the, the right well, lever and, and the right place from which to move the world. All right, it's also a way of deflecting responsibility away from us. Sure. Uh, let's find the genius. Let's give them the army. Let's give them the control of the political uh, system. Um, and at the end of the day, the search for genius, you have to be careful. It can end up in the uh, elevation of the demagogue. Yeah. Um, we've uh, sort of gone through uh, genius. We've gone through examples of uh, destruction suffered uh, by those who sought elusive, decisive battle. If, um, as you're, you've got a template basically in the book for reconsidering a military history, um, it's either implicit or explicit. Um, I guess one of the, some of the terms that you're using might be um, unknown to people. People tend to use strategy uh, to apply it to everything. Um, yeah. What um, What would you say that people? I, what, stumbling over my words here. There's so much to think about. 
Um, this is the way buffs, for example, military buffs. People like to read the stuff, the Barnes Noble books uh, on mil the military history so shelf. Uh, might find it difficult to think about Eisenhower as a great general. They never think about strategy. Those no, they never do. They're all about tactics and battles. Right. Um, so we need to start thinking about uh, generals, in other words, and generals and wars in terms other than um, battles and tactics. Uh, what might that look like uh, as we go forward, as we think a about A strategic view of military history. A strategic history of World War II is not uh, a sequence of, of um, well, we have Pearl Harbor, and then we have Midway, and then we have Guadalcanal. And that's, that's just a narrative history of the events uh, including the military events and the, and, the, and the attendant political and economic events that led to the, to the final military outcome. But you have to go back and look at the decisions that were made, and in that case, made well and brilliantly by Churchill and Roosevelt uh, over about a month in the White House in the last couple of weeks of 1941 and the first week or so of 19, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, of 1942, where mm -hmm. they met in the um, and uh, laid out the strategy for winning the war. Uh, and they, they were so clear-eyed about what they were doing that they actually gave, they understood that they needed to explain this strategy to the people, and to do that, they needed a very simple, straightforward slogan, and they came up with one. It was called Germany First. That was the strategy, Germany First. And as a result of that, almost all of Britain's war effort, the whole of the Soviet war effort, uh, and most of the American war effort went into the defeat of Germany, and Japan, the war in the Pacific, was essentially a holding action in the concept of the Allied leaders, until Germany was defeated, then we'll take care of Japan, because it's not a fundamental threat. Uh, it's, uh, it needs to be dealt with, but it's not a fundamental threat. Now, the Japanese actually fell apart more quickly than was anticipated, because they were so weak and they had gambled so recklessly uh, mm -hmm. in a war that had no business starting. Um, so, so, one of the things I gather from that is that strategy is very simple. Um, Germany first is pretty simple. Yeah, it's how you win the war. I mean, it's a strategic decision for the second are do we in uh, here the allied major decisions there, there are a handful of them and you can identify them among them not only but among them would be uh, when we invade Europe uh, do we go direct do we invade North Africa first and that's what they decided to do then the big decision and they argued about this one and there was division do we go to Italy next or France they went ended up going to Italy which the Americans came to to, to regret that was British policy to attack what Churchill called the soft underbelly of the crocodile Turned out to be a pretty tough old gut, as one Marine once said. Um, <laughs> uh, but but yeah, so those are the strategic decisions. Um, do you uh, when you when you invade Normandy, do you go across? Do you invade France? Do you go across the paddock? Well, that's actually operational. Sort of. Where do you invade France? It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's timing. Uh, how much effort and resources do we put into the air campaign? The British put a quarter of their entire resources into bombing Germany because their strategy was to bomb it into submission didn't work, but that was their strategy. Mm -hmm. The Germans, in contrast, had no strategy to win the war. Once again, the Germans are in World War II, despite their vaunted reputation for military professionalism, really repeated what Hindenburg said in World War I. We punch a hole and see what develops. And what, they, what developed was they got into a long war against the four largest empires in the world simultaneously, the British Empire, the French Empire, the Soviet Empire, and the American Empire. It's preposterous what the Germans did. So and a, a, a strategy fight. for the, I'm sorry, a strategy for the Germans would be something like first Britain and then Russia. Right, uh, but, uh, but, but uh, 
um, that it's not really a strategy. It's uh, it's it's sort of um, a wish and a prayer. Right, but they they didn't even do that. I mean, they if they 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 had no they didn't focus on saying we're not going to commit to anywhere until we do uh, X. Then right. we do and Y. Time the Germans bogged down, which is very quickly. Uh, right. the, the, their solution is not okay. Now maybe we should negotiate terms from a strength. Their solution is we'll win it all on the next battle, or we'll win it all on the next battle. We'll win it all. It goes on and on and on until everybody else has caught up with them in terms of the armies are now experienced, the weapons are now comparable, and there's a hell of a lot more of them on the other side because of the industrial, the industrial base is so much bigger. And the German initial advantage in, uh, they had superior initial advantage in armored uh, tank doctrine, for instance, and things like that. But everybody can learn how to fight with tanks. There's nothing inherently superior about a German in a tank that an American or a Russian or a Brit can't replicate. And over time, they did. Advantage of the long strategic war for the major industrial powers is uh, strategic depth, like Russia has, or like Britain has, or like America had, uh, gives you uh, the time you need to catch up and then overcome the initial military advantage the other side had because he's been planning a war and progressive war, and you're not. Right, and I think the, the essential to your point is is that uh, the enthusiasts for the concept of decisive battle. Uh, we'll say, well, that was, you know, this was Hitler. Um, this was because he was a madman and he did things wrong. And then we've got sort of basically Manstein sort of lost victories thesis, right? Um, well, but, but German generals uh, uh, al- 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 almost never disagreed with this. Right, and it's uh, not, so it's not Hitler, lied it's, it's the culture. They said they lied, they said they disagreed with him after the war, but in fact, and Hitler wasn't always wrong. Where the generals wanted to do something, Hitler, militarily speaking, on several occasions, was more right than they were. Um, he was at the, it, it's the Hitler at the end of the war that we remember, the Hitler who reverted to the World War I soldier who simply hung on to all territory and therefore lost everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but early, early on, the German generals were also, um, they were the principal architects of this notion of the decisive battle, the decisive campaign. Um, and they wanted to continue it after Hitler recognized before they did that the time of uh, glorious maneuver was over. That came around the Battle of Kursk, actually, in, in, in um, um, July 43. Uh, going farther back, to think of the Napoleonic Wars um, through this uh, lens of thinking of strategy first uh, rather than tactics. Normally, we've got this, uh, you know, we've got this, bo- this boring bit when there's no one left to fight um, uh, for Napoleon. What, around 1807? Is that Tilsit? Um, 1809 to 1812, yeah. And yet, of course, a, in thinking of strategy, then it's absolutely, that's an absolutely consequent, the absolutely um, most consequential point um, when Britain is in trying to woo Russia away from France. Uh, it, that's the point of strategic, sort of, uh, greatest strategic drama, isn't it? Absolutely. And the British have a strategy, unlike Napoleon. The British strategy is to contain Napoleon, to strangle him economically. And using their advantage of the uh, several decade jump start they have on the Industrial Revolution and on world commerce and their naval capabilities, um, it is the British are prepared to fight the French to the last Austrian, Prussian, and Russian. Uh, mm-hmm. And to do that, they are prepared to use their economic advantages uh, to make war, to subsidize foreign armies, to bribe foreign leaders, uh, to put their own armies into the field where they can, which happen to be in Spain. Uh, although those are relatively small forces, um, and and to strangle the French uh, with a blockade, uh, and 
and then to, as you, as you immediately just pointed out, to encourage the Russians um, to break the French bloc counter blockade on uh, uh, on Britain, which the Russians agreed to do, and that was why uh, Napoleon felt provoked into invading Russia. And right. Well. So, so um, James Somares, who commanded in the Baltic, is never going to be a British naval hero on par with Nelson. Uh, he won no great fleet victories, or one, one or so. But he's the man who engineers the um, secret trading with the Baltic um, and really breaks the, uh, the sort of Napoleon's counter blockade of Britain. Um, it also and had a number of British admirals who, if you're reading uh, sort of serious, uh, heavy British naval histories, yeah. they will get their due. But in the popular realm, it's always going to be Nelson. It's always going to be the victors. And it's always going to be the admirals in the battles, because we think we understand battles. We think they're the decisive moment, when in fact the naval war against France, you've correctly identified, is a, the, the thing that defeats the French in naval warfare is blockade, not Trafalgar. I mean, Trafalgar was very important, absolutely. Decisive naval battle, critically important, uh, prevented Napoleon from having sufficient escorts to get a, a seat across, across the country. Because we want to we want to repeat the fact that you're not saying that battles cannot be decisive. There are such things as decisive battles. There are. There have been battles which have won wars right at the outset. In fact, that happens just enough that the allure of battle then becomes <laughs> so enticing. It's it's a, people are seduced into war by thinking that they can win them in a short, sharp way. And I mean, what I mean, people here, I don't just mean generals. I mean no. governments don't want to pay for long war budgets who don't want to plan for long war commitments, tell me a way, General, that I can win this right at the outset. That's the so way okay. yeah. that. Just read any newspaper in, say, 1775, first six months of 1776, in colonial America, as it then was, and you see that everyone there also has the allure of battle. Uh, and I didn't write about this at any length in the book. Um, one of the criticisms I get is I don't have a long chapter on the American Civil War, I thought, about, I thought about putting it in there. I, I actually was beginning to write it, but the book's already 800. <laughs> yeah, it, so, it, it's, 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 I'm, I'm glad you didn't actually put it in there. Really the reason I didn't put it in there, plus the American Civil The other thing is, intellectually, though, there is a good reason as well, is the American Civil War did not affect global military history because most people looked at it from Europe and said, bunch of amateurs, we have nothing to learn from those guys. Yeah. And instead looked at the Franco-Prussian War and the Austro-Prussian War, which were the so-called seven-week war um, and, and, and the six-month war of the Franco-Prussian War. And they said, wars aren't long and drawn out. That's because those guys didn't know what they were doing. It's mm -hmm. not about trenches around Richmond, Virginia. War, it's, uh, war, uh, war is about short, sharp, get to the frontier fast with the most, so on. And that's the pattern they repeated in August 1914. Everyone rushes everybody to the frontier for the decisive battle, which... There is a decisive battle in 1914. It's the Battle of the Marne, and it's a massive defensive victory for the French. And it set, it may be one of the most important battles of modern times, and it's largely unknown because it's a defensive victory. Uh, it stopped the Germans from winning the war. It therefore determined that the war would go long, and going long, the Germans could not win. Mm -hmm. um, just in the few minutes we have left, I um, want to get back to... Uh, what military history is good for. Um, you, uh, this is the prize that you're up for, the Gilder Lehrman. Uh, it's been, as the Guggenheim Prize, it's been around for decades now? Yes, um, I believe it just changed the name two years ago. 
Yeah, it, but I know that certainly the intent of the Gilbert Lerman Foundation is to restore the importance by, of military history to the academy by offering a very generous, uh, substantial um, cash award. Um, we were discussing this in the uh, as we were talking before the, we started recording. Um, you have a certain view of, of what you're teaching when you teach your introductory course. Um, what yeah. is that? Well, I, my, my sort of survey course uh, for undergraduates is, is called History of War. Um, but I don't, in my own mind, I've never really thought of it in a sense as a history of war so much as a history of the human condition as we find it at war. Um, and I sort of to paraphrase T.S. Eliot, sort of laid out naked on a table. I mean, I just think we see, we see the human condition in war uh, in its most naked form. Now, you have to be careful with that because, like the lawyers say, hard cases make bad law. So the yeah. extremes of human behavior in war don't necessarily, should not necessarily lead us to conclude that that is the, the, the reality of human nature. Having said that, however, I think one of the lessons of military history that um, is, is that war is all around, war is chronic, war is ubiquitous, war is one of the most common and frequent of human endeavors. It's the one into which we put more effort, more money, more moral commitment um, than anything. Not, nothing else even comes close. No research for the cure of a disease, no cathedral or mosque, nothing comes close to our preparations for war, our waging of war, and our readying for the next war. Um, so that, that, that is one lesson. I think also it should remind us of the dangers of hubris, um, um, that all heroes stand on clay feet, which is why I go after genius as hard as I do. This concept of genius, I think, is pernicious, uh, misleading, um, and uh, ultimately false. Uh, I think war is such a complex activity that even if there is a real genius in war, they can't control it. It's just beyond... Um, the control of of, uh, of of the human mind, the single human mind. My guest today has been Cal Nolan. He's professor of history and executive director of the International History Institute at Boston University, and he's the author of The Allure of Battle. Please buy it and read it. Cal, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very, very much. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.